Apart Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And today's guest is Netherlands native Rude Jolie, who is the lead guitarist of the metal powerhouse Within Temptation. He also has his own solo project for all we know and is an instructor at the world's first government-approved metal guitar tuition school, Metal Factory. Netherlands just seem to be ahead of everyone when it comes to thinking progressively. That's really cool, isn't it? I first met Rude at the Minus 35th anniversary party in Dansk in Poland, and he is a longtime endorser of Minus guitars, and he's been there for almost 20 years. He's toured all over the world with Within Temptation and has been part of their discography since 2001. Anyway, let's get talking to Rude. Welcome to the Riff Hard podcast, Rude. Thank you very much, John and Eyal. <laughs> it's great to be here. It's good to see you again. So you guys know each other? Yes. Yeah, we have met, met in times. Poland, yeah. actually. That's the first time that we met. Where was it? Oh, yeah, it was Poland. Oh, of course, yeah, it was the Mayonnaise anniversary, wasn't it? Exactly. When we got so drunk. Well, did we? <laughs> no, we didn't. We behaved. We behaved. I remember playing with Michael's band, and I hadn't actually learned the song until about an hour before they went on. Ah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And then I yeah. messed it up completely. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, no one noticed. Oh, I did. It was the first time when you played with uh, Flux Conduct, wasn't it? First and only time, yeah. Yeah, oh, only time as well. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Just to brief you, AR, we, uh, there was the Miner's 35th anniversary, which I actually have the, we've got these little ornaments made out of flame maple. Minus has been around for 35 years. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. I thought they were like a new company or something. Yeah, but you know, the Iron Curtain and stuff. So I, I guess that they only got known. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't have a head start. So I only got to know them in 2006, I think. So that's 14 years ago. So they, they're around now for 38 years, so because it was three years ago, I think. So, uh, yeah, do the math. They have been around for a very wow. long time before I even got to know them. Yeah, they started as a like a uh, clone company, pretty much, like cloning ah. other guitars. And the uh, Dawid, who is now the current owner, his dad used to build the guitars and then his mom used to wind the pickups. So it's mm. a family business ever since the beginning. And now they make killer instruments. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you about your book. Just jump right in because it's an interesting idea. Um, like, so saw that the thing that's interesting about your book is you said that you have a big problem with how music theory is addressed in general. I think you called it the esoteric nature of most music theory books. And, uh, 
I interpreted that to mean that, uh, in your opinion, the way theory is generally taught is that it's very disconnected from the actual music. Did I interpret that correctly? I don't know if I said that, but I completely agree with what you're saying. <laughs> well, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> that was lucky. <laughs> yeah, good guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, the way it came about is that, you know, I teach at this Dutch music college. It's called the Metal Factory, and it's an actual government subsidized school where people get a, a scholarship. So it's partly funded by the government and it's completely based on metal. Okay, so it's a metal school funded by the government. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, and we we already had conservatories from back in the day when it was uh, just classical music. And then in, I don't know, the 60s, there then came the jazz uh, departments. And then we had the rock academy, but it's all for the, yeah, and that is always difficult to explain with the different levels of of Dutch uh, schooling systems because yeah you have the higher education that's where the musical uh, educations are like the conservatories and stuff but there was nothing for the middle mid-level educational systems whereas we all thought that you know being a great musician you don't need to be a genius to be a great musician if you know what I mean because it all comes down to playing good music and if you aren't between really huge quotes intelligent enough, then you wouldn't be able to study at a conservatory. Yeah. And fortunately, you know, 10 years ago, these serious educational systems have started to emerge, but there was never anything metal related. And, you know, mm-hmm. I have been teaching at these schools for a very long time. And what I always noticed is that if a kid with a flying V came in for an audition because they all need to do an audition because we want to have them a certain level, you know, once they come in, otherwise it's just a music school. Uh, But if a kid with a flying V came in and he would play like a Metallica song for his audition, he would always get asked, not so much by me, but by colleagues, hey, can you play a a John Mayer kind of... Man, I relate to this very much because I went to Berkeley. Ah, okay. as a metal kid, I mean, I had studied classical music a lot, not classical guitar, but like studied classical music pretty formally before Berkeley, but as a guitar player went in as a metal guy. And, you know, that was in like 99 or something. And they didn't really take metal seriously. And I remember in my audition, I played something metal and they kind of made fun of me. Really? And, uh, they kind of, they were fucking dicks and uh, <laughs> basically acted like, all right, now let's do some real music and tried to get me to read a standard. I didn't know anything about chart reading or anything at that point. So like I did very badly on that. So and they ended up placing me with beginners, even though I had been playing guitar for like seven years and like could play. It wasn't cool. And I realized that they looked at metal like a joke. So I'm, hmm. I'm sure that my experience kind of, echoes what you're talking about to some degree. Absolutely. And also with the the higher education that Rude's talking about, I wouldn't have been able to get into that either because I failed my English. Well, I didn't fail it. I just got a lower grade than I needed to. So that means that I wouldn't have been able to go and study music anyway. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's stupid. That's stupid yeah. in a way. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, that, you know, that, yeah, that we're living in this rich country that allows 
kids to study music. And of course, when I tell people, especially people who don't have anything to do with music and that, that I tell them that I'm teaching at this yeah, metal school, I, I get some weird reactions and I understand That's that, awesome. to be honest, because they think, really metal? Hmm, what's next? A reggae school? Hmm, I don't know. I don't. I mean, the Aussie sounds pretty great. <laughs> I think it sounds awesome. Like, I, are you familiar with URM? URM. No. Nail the mix. Uh, the online recording school. I started, ah, like, we do like yeah. nail the mix and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay. So like the whole reason I started that was because you could go to higher education to learn recording if you wanted to, but there's nowhere anywhere that took metal seriously. Like it's the only style that, you know, has the best producers in the world. And it's like the most difficult genre to mix. Like if you can mix metal, well, you can do anything, but it was considered a joke in traditional recording schools. And so I wanted to, I wanted it to be taught seriously by like the people who do it for real. And so it was a personal mission because it pissed me off that this style of music that takes so much skill and so much talent and so much, like, it's not just creativity. Like the technical side is insane. It takes so much and uh, is regarded as like a joke which is bullshit. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's very weird. I'm surprised that they consider Matt at Berkeley even as a joke since, you know, guys like John Petrucci and and Fi has, has, they have been there. But the thing is, we know about them because they're gods in the metal scene, but there, they're not like, maybe now they're more famous because I think metal has become more mainstream in some ways. Like, it's more acceptable, mm. but... Even when I was there, like John Petrucci was known in the metal community, but he, he was a lot more famous to us than he was to like the Berkeley populace, I'd say. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Because Dream Theater like play arenas and that apparently isn't good enough for Berkeley <laughs> people. <laughs> well, now, now they take credit for all those guys because I think metal... Metal isn't outcast music like it used to be. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like in the 90s, metal was like outcast music. Oh, in the 80s, it was yeah. outcast music. Mm -hmm. Now, I, even though it's still, it's still angry music, but it doesn't, I don't think that it's outcast music like it used to be. So it's, it's a lot more accepted in some, in some ways. And have you noticed that? That's good. Yeah, I think so. That's the reason why, you know, a, a school like the Metal Factory can exist. Can exist, yeah. Yeah. Another reason, of course, is is I think that me coming from the Netherlands, the bands that are successful abroad, not only in the Netherlands, but also in other countries, they are usually metal bands. The more pop-related bands, I don't know what to call it, because, you know, the genre pop, that's also pretty broad. But they they... Yeah, they stay in the Netherlands, basically. So it's almost a fact that the Dutch bands who are playing all around the world and who are able to make a little bit of money are metal bands. That's actually, I never thought about that. That's actually a good point. Yeah, I've, I've thought about that too. I think that's true with most of Europe. Like the bands that you hear about here, at least, are the metal bands. I mean, not necessarily with England. With England, you get a lot of rock bands. But like when you think of the Netherlands, you think of Sweden, mm. you think of Norway. Finland, yeah. 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 Like the bands that we know of here, like the big exports are the metal bands. Mm. And 
pretty fucking heavy ones too. Like, <laughs> it's pretty impressive. <laughs> what do you think it is about, uh, about, I guess the, the culture in Europe that allows that to happen? Um, because the reason I'm wondering is because I don't think that metal is necessarily that much bigger in Europe than it is here, but it's treated differently. Like I feel like it's respected more in a weird way to where you can have a school like metal factory and a metal band that's doing well can be treated or viewed, I guess, in a more respected, serious way than it would happen here. Like a good example is uh, you see a band like Timo Borgir playing mm. with an orchid, like a, orchestra in Norway and it's like this huge spectacle on TV on national TV and it's like a big big deal nationally that would never happen here hmm. say there was that sort of band in the US they would never get a gig with a major orchestra and it would definitely not be televised hmm. like it would have to be Metallica or something hmm. yeah that's a very good question i have no idea i know how it you know went with within temptation you know when we got that hit single in the netherlands ice queen that was in 2002 that was something that was has never been heard before you know heavy guitars orchestra and female vocal that's basically the the three ingredients i'm selling it a bit too short but mainly you know the three ingredients that that made up that sound and that a lot of people had never heard before and especially in the Netherlands, it was since it's a very melodic thing. Maybe that's also a thing that a lot of people, when they who are not familiar with heavy metal music, when they think of heavy metal music, they imagine that it's all just a bunch of noise and a bunch of screaming and you know the, the grunts <laughs> and you know that kind of stuff. Which is partially true. It is partially true. <laughs> there is that. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, but and maybe that's why back then, like eighteen years ago. It was a pleasant surprise for a lot of people that there was a Dutch metal band, but with nice angelic female vocals. And and of course back then people started to uh, to compare us to all these others, other yeah that female fronted metal. I hate that term, but all those other things. Whereas you know even in that subgenre there are huge huge differences. Oh, massive. Massive. When you guys did stuff with an orchestra way back then, would you say that the public took you seriously as artists or they just thought it was a cool band? Well, that period of time, it was still samples. That was not a real orchestra yet, but it had the orchestral sound. But then we, you know, we got invited on mainstream TV, mainstream radio, and apparently people, yeah, they took us seriously immediately. And, 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 you know, for the record, we all thought it, it was going to be a one-time thing, you know, that it, that we would have, were able to, you know, to, to taste a little bit of the mainstream scene in the Netherlands and that we would then go back into the underground. But uh, fortunately that, uh, or fortunately, I don't know, but that didn't happen. <laughs> we're still, yeah, I don't know whether, what is better or not, but yeah, we're still doing well. Although that the mainstream audience... You know, it happens more and more often that I then when when people get to know that I that I'm a musician. Oh, do you play in a band? Yeah, I play in a band. Which band? Yeah, within Temptation. What? Yeah, it's that band. With the, oh yeah. Oh, you guys still around? <laughs> 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 and that's funny. So there's this idea that people have here that uh, we hear about bands like Within Temptation that uh, do very well commercially over there 
is it actually the way we perceive it as to where metal bands of similar size and stature as you guys are considered like on the same, I guess, level as like a pop act, like to the public there? Because that's the perception of it here. That when we think of bands like Within Temptation or like say Nightwish or something like that, we think huge. And we think like that they're like on level with what a pop act would be over there. Yeah, I think that people think that over here as well. And and especially also for a band like Nightwish. You know, Nightwish, they're from Finland, but they have a Dutch uh, singer, Floor, Floor Jansen. Uh, she used to sing in After Forever. And she did this yeah mainstream TV show. Uh, it was called the best singer of the Netherlands or something like that, something stupid like that. But it <laughs> it was a show that there were all kinds of different vocalists and they would sing and interpret each other's songs, which was really great. It's a really nice show. But from that moment on, Nightwish got known by the mainstream public over here in the Netherlands. And then they started to sell out huge arenas again, not twice or not once, but twice. Well, it just seems like there's a different appreciation there for for music you just don't have here could be or here could be you don't have it in england no not to the level i mean the netherlands i mean they they have venues that are government funded that are amongst the best venues i've ever seen it's like a more sophisticated appreciation for art in general i think 100 percent. yeah yeah and and you know we all have to wait what this corona thing will do to the to the government fundings but up till now even though that the Dutch people are always complaining that they are cutting money from the cultural side, you know, but I still think that are not to complain here because, yeah, Netherlands, Germany as well, Belgium in a way, but also Scandinavia. You know, you go to Finland and in Finland, heavy metal is real mainstream. That's just yes. real mainstream. That's that's incredible. That's, that's great. <laughs> but Sweden, not so much, is it, John, or... No, no. I mean, that metal's there, definitely. You yeah. know, it, you can see it on television for sure. But compared to Finland and Norway, I'd say it was significantly less. Yeah. And I think that that might be Abba's fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think yeah. in Sweden, the situation is that there's so much success across the board musically mm, mm, mm. that they don't stand out quite as much as like, I mean, I don't know too many Norwegian pop stars that broke over to here or whatever, but we know of non-metal Swedish artists mm. that went international. So I just think by contrast, there's just more more competition for this for space and attention when it comes to Sweden. Good point. Back to what we were talking about before though. So like the fact that you have a school that's based on metal, live in a culture where that can even happen in the first place, how do you make sure in the actual curriculum or in the approach, um, things don't get stale in the way that music schools can sometimes do? Because like, for instance, something that would happen at Berkeley uh, is that it would start to sound like people were making elevator music because they were just learning techniques, theory, standards, all that kind of stuff, but they weren't there's no passion really being communicated or encouraged or anything like that. And so you ended up with a bunch of people who ended up with some skills, but very little ability to communicate any sort of feeling. And maybe that doesn't matter so much if you're 
if your goal is to play weddings, right? Like, and that's actually the goal of like the guitar program there is to make a guitar player who's capable of, you know, you do a wedding one day, then you do some lessons the next day, then the next day you're doing a session, then you're doing a bar mitzvah, then, you know, like that kind of musician. But metal without that passionate side doesn't work. That's kind of integral to the genre. So how do you, how do you keep that in there in an academic setting? We try to to link it as much to the real world as much as possible, because a misconception that people have is that, and I always make jokes, I always tell them, yeah, you know, we, we come in, we do our prayers to Satan, then we bite off the head of a, of a bat, we drink its blood, and then we play Slayer the rest of the day. You know, that's not the case. We really have... No? Bummer. Yeah, bummer. Yeah. I always see some disappointed faces at the first, <laughs> first day of school. But uh, we focus a lot on the business side of things. Like, it's great that you have a band and that you have an EP, and but what then? We also focus a lot of, of uh, their own creativity. They always have to, you know, every school year is divided into four periods. And in every period, they, ha- they are being put together in a band and they have to create a repertoire of, of 15 or 20 minutes or something, original uh, music. On the other side, they also have band classes where they play covers, but... They, they have to play the covers as, as as close to the original as possible. But also classes like music theory and metal history, you know, they, they, they learn about all the old, uh, you know, the old history stuff. Uh, yeah, all kind of, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a class called company. That's, that's where you, where they learn how to, yeah, set up their own company basically, because knowing how to play is one thing. But we don't want those guys to end up as bedroom guitar players. We want them to be able to make a living. And of course, it's a, it's a utopia to think that every kid who comes to that school ends up being able to make a living by playing music. But I don't think that's ever the case in any educational stuff. No. And actually, if you geared your, a school towards having 100% success rate, you wouldn't be able to keep the school going there's no way you could ever have a 100 percent success rate no no exactly you'd have to have like five students mm. yeah yeah <laughs> well not to be neck maybe 10. i don't know the rates i don't know the, and besides you know we we all know that there are many many ways to make a living in the music industry you yes, don't have exactly. to make a living on stage you know you can also make a living by you know what, what we all do we all have different sides uh, of this profession that we uh, embrace and that 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 makes us money. Exactly. It's all about finding your own little niche. True. It's almost like the the music side of it is like the common bond, the glue. It doesn't necessarily have to be the main money maker. I mean, if it is, that's cool. I think though that when people are inexperienced and young, obviously they want that to be their main money maker when they're thinking towards the future. Obviously, most people hope that it's a band, like their band that gets them to that point. And I remember when people used to tell me that there's many different ways to to make it work, uh, that would piss me off. <laughs> and I felt like it was a disappointment. But at the same time, now it's not a disappointment at all. So I actually love the situation I'm in. So I am hoping that when you communicate this to students that they see it as a positive thing 
that there is a way to make it work. Even if you're not in some huge band, there's plenty of ways to make it work in music. Absolutely. And what also happens is that people, you know, they come to the school with all these dreams, but during those three years, the, the, you know, the whole thing lasts three years, they realize that they want to keep music as a hobby. That makes them much happier. No, we had a we had a kid who is a police officer now, and he still plays the drums for a hobby. And in the end, I think that might make him happier than hustling for another euro by trying to play the drums or by doing all kinds of stuff that is even further from his dreams than being a police officer now. Yeah, I think that before you're actually in something, right? Before like you have experienced something on a real level, all you have is an idealized version, Hmm. like a fantasy of what it is. And so it's easy to say, I want that. That's what my dream is. But I mean, that's all it is at that point in time is a dream. And so there's no real link yet to the reality of it. And I think a lot of people find out that uh, the reality of it isn't necessarily for them. I actually think that there's very few people who have the personality even to do music for a living. I don't mean talent, forget talent. I just mean personality. Um, You have to have a certain kind of personality that is comfortable with risk. Um, It's comfortable with risk comfortable with discomfort and uh, and just comfortable with a, comfortable with a lot of stuff that uh, people generally aren't comfortable with hmm. yeah I think you're absolutely right yeah so it's it's not a big deal when they you know if they figure out that it's not for them that's actually a good thing yeah because you know the, the age is is between the ages are between 16 and I don't know I think my oldest student is 29 now so you can imagine that a kid of 16 who has been to the Grass Pop Festival in Belgium, you know, who has seen, you know, all these bands play. Yeah, I want that. Yeah, of course you want that. That's what I wanted when I watched Life After That by Iron Maiden, you know, you know, VHS. <laughs> but exactly, you only see a small part of it. And and yeah, I think you described it perfectly when, when you see the reality of it, that you sometimes notice that it might not be for you. And then it's okay as well, I guess. I mean, so obviously... It was for you. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it still, right? So so far, so good. So far, so good. So at what point did you realize that it was for you? After it was no longer just a dream and it's a reality, was there any point where you were like, okay, yeah, I can actually do this. This is, this is it. I'm cool with this. Ooh, that's a very good question. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. You know, after high school, I wanted to pursue a career in music, but I'm the only musician in my whole family. So my parents are not familiar with, uh, you know, being self-employed and especially not a self-employed musician. So they were always a little bit hesitant and they were like, yeah, but shouldn't you study something else first in, you know, in case the music thing doesn't work. They have always been supportive, but also a little bit protective in a, in a way. And Practical. Yeah, practical. Yeah, exactly. And also my dean in my high school, he was like, yeah, but music, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And maybe I was young, maybe that scared me off a little bit too much. And I decided to study some, some law-related thing. I didn't finish it. And maybe that was the moment that I thought, fuck it, I'm not, I'm not, 
I'm not happy doing this. I want to make music. And that's when I applied for the conservatory. And that's when I got accepted. And five years later, I graduated and I, uh, I immediately got a job already before I graduated, actually, of about 12 hours a week at this music school teaching. So I already had, a, a, a you know, some income. So that made it easier. I never really had to hustle in my life. You lucky son of a bitch. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, yeah, I realized that. I realized that. But that also that's also because I, I always liked and I really still love uh, teaching. And, you know, teaching is a very safe, it's maybe the safest way of making some money. Yeah, if you have enough students. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think music education is not going anywhere. No. And I'm still so happy that I'm able to teach with this whole Corona thing. Because, you know, every gig in my agenda is gone. So uh, I'm, I'm really happy that it gives me something to do and it, you know, yields me some income. So, you know, the part that I think is lucky, because I don't really believe in luck, uh, the part that I think is lucky is that you enjoy teaching. Because a lot of guitar players and musicians see it as, like, what to do if everything else fucks up, you know? And they don't actually enjoy it. They don't want to do it. However, if you actually enjoy it, then that's great because it actually is one of the most stable things that you can do yeah, exactly. as a musician. And so if you don't see it as like, oh man, I fucked up. I have to teach. You actually, it's something you actually enjoy. That's the lucky part, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a good point that I'm lucky that I like teaching. Hmm, never looked at it that way. Thank you. <laughs> well, because you can't, you can't choose who you are, right? You can't choose your tastes, mm. like, or what your inclinations are in life. Like we are who we are. I mean, we can choose what we what we do and what direction to go in and all that. But you either are the kind of person that enjoys teaching or you're not like either you are the kind of person who is risk tolerant or you're not, you know, like I don't think that those things are really malleable. They're just part of our character. And so. And Rude has both of them. <laughs> risk mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. likes teaching. It's like the perfect human. Yeah. So <laughs> I think it sounds, sounds to me like you have the, the right brain chemistry to make this work. And it's really cool that the thing that, uh, that you have, that's the stable thing is something in music that fits perfectly in. So it's like your whole life can be integrated. Yeah. S sounds like the dream. Yeah, it is. It does. Wow. Never realized that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 what role did the band play? Like, uh, when say you got the teaching gig, you're making some income, like, were you like, cool, I'm good. We'll just keep this going. Or did you have this thought of, I'm going to try to get a huge band together? No, absolutely not. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I was still studying at the conservatory, everyone wanted to make their living by playing. That was the highest achievable thing. I want to make money by playing. And I always said, nah, I want to teach two or three days a week and maybe do something else, something completely else, you know, doing some, uh, I don't know, driving a truck or whatever, you know, <laughs> one day a week, as long as I didn't have to do wedding bands because these wedding bands, weddings take usually place during the weekends. And when is the time to do gigs with your own band, with your own original music band, even how small it is in a bar or whatever, that's during the weekend. So I never wanted to, yeah, 
to me, that was the most important thing. And how I would make my money, I didn't really care. I, yeah, like you said, I'm lucky that I like teaching, but I wouldn't have minded if I would have to take on a completely different type of job, like a mailman or whatever. Just as long as it didn't get in the way. Exactly. In the beginning, you know, like I already said before, the first time that Within Temptation got their break, we all thought it, that it was going to be for a very short time, that after a while, you know, we would go back into the underground again. So question is, uh, you didn't want something to get in the way of it, but at the same time, you said that you weren't like hustling to try to make a huge band. So did you consider it kind of like this sacred space, almost like even if it was just a hobby, you're going to do it no matter what and nothing's going to get in the way kind of thing. This is the one thing that nothing else touches. Yeah. I wanted to play my own music or, you know, at least have my own band, have a band with the music that I liked, even if it wouldn't make me any money. I, I didn't care back then. So regardless of the level it got to, what mattered was doing your own shit. Yeah. So you're saying that you, that you guys got your break, but we're only expecting it to be a quick, a quick thing. How long did it take before you realized that it wasn't going to be a quick thing? Yeah, I think when we released the Silent Force album in 2004, I think, because that was the first time that we did a headline tour through Europe. And the, the first time that we did a European tour was as a support for Paradise Lost. And we played these venues. And the second time we did a European tour, that was when we released our, our second album, that was when we did pretty much those same venues, but as a headliner and even bigger venues and bigger festivals came and, you know, festivals for the next year were already booked. And, you know, we got signed by this, by this big label and, you know, it, yeah, everything started to grow pretty rapidly. And yeah, but, but we never expected that, that it was still going to be big in, uh, you know, 16 years later. But you had some good evidence that it wasn't just going to disappear right yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. How did you balance that with the, with the teaching? Did you quit teaching for a while or did you keep it going anyways the whole time? I kept it going, but the music school where, where I was employed, I had an actual employment. They were so nice that they could give me time off whenever I wanted. And I took a sabbatical twice, I think. And I only quit uh, six years ago. Crazy. But because I liked it and they gave me all the freedom that I wanted. So I never had the, the you know, the urge to, to quit. Although that was a music school. So I taught uh, beginners and that is kind of fun, but that's not something that I really want to do anymore because I, I remember that we were playing this gig. It was at the end of a European tour and... I was playing this song and I was thinking, ah, oh, tour is almost over. I had a great time, but, you know, going back home is also nice, you know, watching movies, hanging out with friends, doing sports. And then I thought, ah, oh, shit, teaching at the music school. And I felt that, <laughs> that feeling like, oh man. And that really woke me up like, hey, maybe I should quit because, you know, work-wise, financially, I didn't really need it. And I thought, yeah, I, I think that I've... It's time. Yeah, it's time. You know, I've, I've taught enough seven-year-old kids how to play a D chord while they look at me as if they see, you know, whatever, 
you know, with that <laughs> stupid look on their face, like, oh, is that a decor? No, I've had that. <laughs> There's definitely a big difference between teaching beginners and then teaching people that understand the mechanics of the instrument. Yeah. There's a really big difference, isn't there? Yeah, it is. This is much more For fun. patience. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It takes a, a special kind of person also. I think it takes like a certain type of person to really enjoy teaching beginners and kids. Hmm. I don't know how they do it. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither anymore. <laughs> Imagine what your driving teacher felt like. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I always have this. This is like what I compare it to. Just imagine this person gets into the car with someone that's never driven before and man, but the thing is with driving teachers, they've got to be a little crazy. Oh, they've got to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cuz like they're willingly stepping into a car with a 15-year-old <laughs> who's never driven before. Yeah. It's, yeah, that just seems borderline suicidal. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you're obviously very educated guitar player. I mean, you know, we've been talking about education this whole time and have a very advanced understanding of guitar. And one thing that happens a lot when people are, let's say, super advanced with guitar, when you hear their music, they tend to go overboard. So this is something that I noticed at Berkeley was uh, the professors, you know, they were like, as far as musical knowledge went, they were crazy good. Like their knowledge of theory and arrangement and their skills was off the charts, obviously. And their professors at Berkeley, they were fucking awesome. But man, every once in a while, they would play me their music. It was some of the worst garbage I've ever heard in my entire fucking life. <laughs> um, and it was just, it was like all the stuff that they taught was out the window. Um, so the arrangements were stupid, overly technical, like not music. It just seemed like somebody who was like writing an academic paper in musical form. And so when I hear your band, I think that the use of guitar is very, it's very uh, well arranged. It's very well arranged and it's like, it seems to play its perfect role within the arrangement. Like it's not the star of the show, but it's also super, super useful, super important. Like you can't not have it in there. So I'm wondering how you define uh, the role of guitar in your band and how you approach it, considering that you've got all this formal knowledge that could take it off the rails. Yeah, true. Well, First of all, to begin with, I'm not that great of a guitar player, technically. Hmm. Whenever I introduce myself to my new students every year, then I always start with, yeah, I'm, I, I can play anything. And then I look a little bit arrogant just to see the reaction of those guys. But then I hmm. tell them, yeah, but I'm not good at anything in specific. Because, you know, I started out with playing Iron Maiden. I'm, I, I would say that I'm most of all a metal player, but... I, I can play all the, these heavy, you know, that, that kind of right hand, my right hand sucks. And I study jazz guitar, but to call myself a jazz player, not really. I grew up with country music. You know, I know my country licks, but I'm not a typical country guitar player. So in that sense, 
I might be lucky as well that I can't even take it off, off the rails if even if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with, within Temptation, uh, we are all very clear on the fact that uh, the song is the most important thing. And I think that we try to make our guitar parts uh, as functional as possible, even if it means that it's super simple. Yeah, then so be it. If that's what the what the song needs to all of us, that's the most important thing. And of course, we all have our moments, you know, our little guitar solos and stuff. And that's that's why we can do whatever we want. But even then, you know, Adrian Smith, our maiden's Adrian Smith, he's one of my favorite guitar players. And even though that the stuff he plays isn't as easy as it might sound, but I always liked him because he was able to... He's still able to, to, you know, to create a composition within the composition, within the song. His solos are like little compositions. It's not mindless noodling and shredding and stuff. Nothing wrong with that per se, but I always like the approach of, you know, trying to make nice melodies and nice phrasing and nice tone and yeah. Serving the song. Yeah, exactly. Man, I have always thought that it's more impressive and more difficult to come up with something simple that's just right, that's just the right part for a song, whether it's a simple lyric or a simple melody or a simple riff, I think that that figuring out the exact right thing to do that serves the functional role perfectly, that's a lot harder than to just like do something crazy because you can almost hide behind doing something crazy. Like yeah. the the more notes you have, the less value each individual yeah. note has. And the more crazy shit you do, the more you can fool people with uh, style over substance. But when you have a more simplified functional approach, it's got to be all substance or you kind of got nothing. So I actually personally think that that's harder to do. It's harder to pull off. Like when you take that song by ACDC, what's the one again? Dun, k, da, da, da. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the song for some reason. I don't know why. Back in, Back black. in black. That's the one. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. My my mind just went blank for some reason. <laughs> but like I've heard of it before. Back in blank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like just take the rhythm section of that song, the guitar part. It's so simple. But have you have ever heard anyone play it like Malcolm Young? Mm. No. Never. Mm. And it's <laughs> no. Uh, no, it just it it's and that's like, how do you, you know, I think that it's actually harder sometimes to recreate. I think it's harder. Walk by Pantera is another perfect yeah. example. Yeah. I've never heard anybody play that riff correctly. And it's technically a very easy riff. Like there's nothing to it. But uh, I mean, I'm sure we've all tried to play it and heard a bunch of people cover it. Why can't anyone play it right? <laughs> <laughs> Because I think that shit's harder. I think that when it's less notes as well, it's... Every note matters more. Yeah. To, yeah. to a degree, yeah. Well, obviously 100%, not to a degree, 100%. But I think also, as you were saying, you can hide when there's more notes. And mm -hmm. then obviously with the individual notes, and it's almost the things you don't hear that make it. So like that quarter note bend or something that's done in that exact way and even yep. potentially just by those fingers on that guitar through that amp at that moment in time yeah i mean another good example of that for me is i can't ever imagine beat it with a different guitar solo oh yeah, yeah. no of course not that is 
one of the best guitar solos ever written, in my opinion. <laughs> Let me first say that I think Ingve is fucking awesome. All right. So <laughs> I need to say that because what I'm about to say, someone might confuse. So I think Ingve was revolutionary uh, and is fucking awesome. One of the best ever. So that said, I've never heard anyone really like imitate him perfectly, but I've heard people come close to copying his style. I've heard a lot of people come closer to that than I've heard them do ACDC right, mm. which is crazy. It doesn't seem like it should be that way because uh, the Ingve stuff is so much more technically difficult. Uh, but uh, for the reason that we're talking about, that's why I think it's more possible to come closer to that than it is to play walk properly, which is crazy because it's completely unintuitive. But I'm sure you've heard shredders who do the Ingve thing, who maybe they don't sound exactly like him, like they don't have his vibrato exactly, but they sound... They sound pretty close. I'm sure you've heard some. I know I have. There's only one person that I've heard that has imitated Pantera as closely to Dime. And there's only one in the world, and it's Wes Hauk. I've never heard anyone. Oh, man. What, yeah, Wes can pull it off. Yeah, it's it, like if they, if, you know, before, um, rest in peace, before, you know, Vinny died, I would have said that if they ever came together again, then he would have been the best example to play Dime's parts because I've never heard anyone come that close. But yeah, it's quite interesting how simple is often harder. And, you mm. know, I understand why you like uh, Adrian so much because it's that. Mm. It's not overplaying, it's serving the song. And it's just, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Also, it seems like in a Within Temptation song, with the amount of other stuff you guys have going on, you could easily fuck the song up with... <laughs> the wrong riff or yeah. too complicated of a riff or just too many notes in the riff or whatever. Like, could you talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges of working within those arrangements? Well, one thing that comes to mind is, uh, speaking of, you know, working with an orchestra, uh, that was our 2004 record, the first album that I did with them, uh, The Silent Force. We worked for the first time with a real orchestra. I recorded the guitars but simultaneously, they recorded the orchestra in Prague. Oh, Czech Philharmonic? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Man, that orchestra. Uh, I know that orchestra. All right, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, they do a lot. They do. For some reason, and I don't know if it's because orchestras tend to uh, tune 442, if I'm not mistaken. I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> yeah, it might have something to do with that, but that was the challenge because when we got those files back, yeah, everything was out of tune. <laughs> Man, I have an experience with them too uh, on that on the Ingve record where the intonation was a nightmare, and mm. the conclusion we came to is that the keys drove them crazy. Like having they're not used to playing with like six flats or something, mm. and so you know, like. E flat minor is normal to a guitar player in 1997, <laughs> but not normal for those string players to have to read that. Even though they're great readers, they're just not used to having that those many sharps or flats. And so apparently the, the working theory was that it was fucking them up ah, because uh, yeah. on that record that I was involved with, like uh, there were, the same problems. I never heard that it was the 440 issue, 
No, I think it was intonation because some chords were correct and some chords were off. And I was sometimes, you know, retuning per chord. That was, that was, oh man, I wanted to kill myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel your pain. Yeah. Uh, now we've got auto-tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now we don't need to be able to do anything anymore. Awesome. Well, you, you know, also with orchestral music, what it means to be in tune is a little bit more loose than what it means in on a metal record. There's a lot more room for it to be loose, I think. I mean, obviously, don't want things out of tune, but intonation is more of a fluid thing, I think, in that world where it's not at all in metal. So you can very quickly ruin a metal recording with auto-tune strings or something. So how did you solve it? Just re-record every chord separately sometimes. To match their intonation? Yep. Oh, man. I never thought about that anymore until we brought it up, but that, that wasn't <laughs> fun. That wasn't fun. No, it took a we long bring time. in nightmares for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, well. <laughs> No, and sometimes, yeah, out. sometimes it's pretty difficult to come up with just that small part that works in the rest of the arrangement because lately we don't use that many orchestras anymore, but it has become a bit more electronic uh, arrangement-wise, so more synth stuff. Sometimes less is more. That is really one thing that, uh, that, that is true in those situations. I think that Ingve would completely disagree with you right there with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know more that interview more is more. <laughs> yeah. But is it a similar sort of challenge, even if it's whether the arrangement is electronic or an orchestra or whatever? Yeah. You still have to find the exact right guitar part that is badass, but not in the way. Yeah, true. And also our music is not that riff based. You know, you have a lot of metal music, which is completely riff based, but our music is more chord based and more, yeah, you know, the, 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 the harmonies and stuff, um, which makes it a bit more difficult as well to come up with a cool guitar part, which follows chords. Yes. Yeah. It's a, a interesting because lots of times riffs aren't even really in a key. Hmm. Like they're like kind of in a key, not necessarily. Metal's kind of weird like that. So once you start actually basing it on chords, it gets gets more difficult. So do you do you have a method for taking a progression and riffing it up, or is it something that basically you just sit there and fuck with it till it's cool? Yeah, that, that's that's how we did it on our latest album. Uh, we had uh, two weeks in the studio, me and uh, and Stefan Helleblad, our guitar player from Sweden. He came over to the Netherlands and we had the songs, but not every song, you know, because if a song is written and with a riff, that's the riff, you know, there's not that much that you can do about it, but lots of parts, especially during verses and choruses, they didn't have any proper guitar parts. And that's what we were doing while recording. And that sometimes took a long, long time, but yeah, it's kind of fun, you know, to really put a magnifying glass on, yeah, what are we doing exactly? Not not in the analytical sense, I mean, but more like, yeah, what works, what doesn't work. And usually it's not so much the melodic notes, but more the rhythms that sometimes work or don't work. And, and sometimes a very small change can make a huge difference. What kind of change? Like, do you remember anything in particular or 
a reason I'm asking, because I think it's always interesting to know, you know, the public hears the finished product, right? And just accepts it for what it is. They don't know how many different versions there were or like which pause between which notes took, you know, two weeks to figure out or whatever. Yeah, no, to be really honest, I don't remember. I like to forget those moments as well. <laughs> Brown, those moments are a big part of your writing, aren't they? Yeah, huge. Well, I mean, like little changes, like yeah, from single note things sometimes. Yeah, a lot. It, sometimes it's even like replacing one riff in a song and maybe moving it to a different point, little things like that. I would say that to me is the longest point of writing a song. Like getting the riffs together and getting a form of structure can do it any day, but it's the making it into a fluid, finished piece of music for me that takes the long time because you can, as you know, Rude's already said, you can change one note out of a chord and it completely changes the meaning of that chord based on what else is going on with it. So yeah, you know, like changing maybe the third repeat of the chorus or something like that to a different chord for one one bit or instead of the bass just following the guitar for this one note, maybe we should do it a third lower or a fifth higher or something like that. That's like all down to that point, personal preference as well. So when do you know when it's right? <laughs> That's interesting. You just do. After you've listened to it 10,000 times already, you know? Yeah. I actually leave that stuff to chance. What do you mean? For the amanuensis, I purposely didn't finish some of the riffs. So it wasn't that it wasn't completely finished, but it was like, huh, when I'm in recording, I might play around with this little bit. Ah. Ah, okay. Okay. You left room for spontaneity. Spontaneity in the moment when I was recording the guitars. Yeah. To avoid the demoitis. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Because for Gnosis, the first album we did, I think that some of the demos turned out better than the final album version. And it made me quite unhappy. So at that point for the second album, I decided not to completely finish set in stone Mm. everything that was there and thought, let's just leave this to chance. And I'm glad I did because it actually turned out better, in my opinion, what came out. Hmm. Interesting. We even recorded the drums to one of the songs and the song wasn't finished. I ended up taking two riffs out of it completely and redoing the structure. I think there's some artists where that's a really good idea <laughs> and some artists where it's a really bad idea. I'm saying this as some, as you know, someone that's recorded people. It's interesting because uh, leaving room for spontaneity makes a lot of sense, right? You want to be able to capture magic when magic happens, not get demoitis, like you said. But I have noticed that there's some artists who can't handle that sort of thing. They need it to be exactly what it's going to be before they record it like note for note for note with no variation because their brain is more like a computer than like, it's not as creative. It's more (laughs) like, I'm not knocking them. There's actually some really good musicians who are like this, but I remember there's some people I've worked with who they're in really good bands, but try to make a change to one of their songs and like, couldn't, couldn't compute. Like Mm. it, it was actually a really bad idea to suggest anything just because they weren't, able to to harness any spontaneity so there are certain musicians where that actually is a bad idea interestingly enough it surprised the shit out of me when i when Mm. i saw it (laughs) because i thought all musicians wanted some room for spontaneity no 
No. Actually, funny no. enough, when you recorded the vocals on the Emanuensis, Garden of Sankara, Chris had to rewrite one whole bit because I was out of the room during the recording session of the drums for that song. And Mike did one of his Mike-isms. <laughs> which, is? which was, which was uh, fucking up the cymbals, the placement of this one riff. And then the vocals didn't work, which was quite interesting. <laughs> All right. So speaking of vocals, at what point do the vocals come in in Within Temptation? Because I imagine that making sure that nothing gets in the way of that is the priority, right? Yeah. The demos are pretty complete, usually. And I think that that is very important for the arrangements also. Yeah, that the vocal lines and the melodies and the little things that are quite complete i'm not saying to be really honest i'm i'm never involved in the vocal recordings and stuff i'm never there obviously so i don't know how much how much it changes or how that process works i couldn't say do you have like a demo guide to go with when you're refining riffs yes yes okay yeah yeah otherwise it's impossible yeah. I remember this this band I worked with, a, a progressive band, where this was a disaster. Um, they were having communication problems in the band. This was the last record they made before they broke up. This is like a signed band and everything. Um, but they were having communication issues. So every member, and again, let, let me say, this is pro- progressive music, like uh, complex shit. Every member wrote, their own parts on their own for the same songs, but didn't communicate with each other about the changes. So <laughs> they each, so like the lead guitar player was not talking to the vocalist. The synth player was not talking to either of them and they refused to share the parts with each other. So when they got to the studio, they would fight with each other about who would go first because because <laughs> who would go first would determine yeah, the course which of the song, song it really mm. was. Yeah. And then some of them were super hard headed. So they insisted on putting their parts on regardless of what the other person went did. So you ended up having like the worst clashing shit, like three different songs playing at the same time. I've never really seen anything like it before or since. <laughs> Obviously, they broke up after that. Um, but it was a very, very unique situation. Like you'd have, you'd have guitar solos happening at the exact same time as very important vocal melodies and not like a slash and axle sort of thing at the end of a song. That's really cool. Like where there should be no solo, there just be these long ass really thought out solos and, uh, vocals at the same time and not on purpose. It's just because they weren't communicating. I've got an idea who this is. Oh, you, you know them. I know the band. You do. Yeah. You know them. Is the singer in another band now? I'm not going to dignify that response with an answer. <laughs> yes, that means yes. I know who this is. I know who this was. Yeah, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> Worst communication I've ever seen in my entire fucking life. <laughs> so that's that's why having seen like the worst possible version of that, I couldn't imagine trying to write for a band like yours without knowing where the vocals are going. It seems like, that's like the North Star, almost. Yeah, exactly. That That's the most important thing. You know, basically we're pop music with a heavy, heavy sauce over it. And with, with which I mean, 
yeah, like I said before, we're not riff based, you know, I really consider lots of metal bands riff based and, and lots of rock bands, maybe chord based. And we are basically rock band, a heavier rock band in that sense, composition wise. I don't know if that makes sense to you or to the listeners, but it makes perfect sense. At what point do you use riffs? Like, is it like, we haven't had a riff for a while. Let's throw one in. Or is it when you do go riff based on a section, is it a, a calculated thing? Wow. Difficult questions, Al. I like Sorry. it. Sorry. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's perfect. You know, it, to be really honest, I'm, I'm, I'm never that, I don't approach it that consciously. Like I said before, you know, a riff that's 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 usually a foundation of a song. You know, if you have the reckoning, mm-hmm. that song has has done pretty okay in the in the US. Uh, I don't know about the UK, but uh, you know, you have that gong 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 gong. Yeah, you know, that's what it is. There's not that much you can do about it. But then you have, you know, the 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 the, the verses. What would is that the one with Papa Roach in? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Oh, very good question. Yeah, I don't, I don't listen to my own music that much. I don't know about <laughs> you guys, but uh, <laughs> after the ten thousand times of listening to it during the the creation and the recording, and then in my case for a few albums, the mixing and the mastering of it, I tend oh to leave God. it for about a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and then touring oh, oh, it only obviously. a year. Well, before I listen to the record and decide, nah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, but but I, I'm trying to remember what we did the last time around with the previous album, Resist. Wow, I'm an idiot. I really feel stupid now. <laughs> no, I get an amnesia too with those sorts of things. It's like weird. It's like you focus on it so hard when you're yeah. working on it and then poof. Yeah, when you smash it on, on, on the hard drive these days, then yeah, it's good. Okay, you can forget about it now. It's, it's like trying to break down something to teach someone when you've never actively thought about it. Mm. It, just, it just happens, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, true. You don't really think about the process because the process just happens in front of you. Yeah, and we were, you know, it was the, the two of us or the three of us. So, you know, we were sparring with ideas and, hey, you know, if you take that out or, or yeah, maybe it was something like, hey, can we make a riff out of this? It probably probably went like that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you've said this several times that you consider you guys to be chord based. And we were talking earlier about your theory book. Can you talk a little bit about what role that plays for you in your writing? Like, do you think about theory at all? Uh, Or is it just something where your ears already developed? So you kind of already know what wrong notes are and right notes and kind of go by feel, but can then analyze it later. Yeah, that, that's the way I do it. Because I think that, you know, there's always this thing that people say, you know, once you know theory, that's when you stop playing from the heart. You know, people tend to say st- stupid things They're like wrong. that. Yeah, I think so too. I think that maybe maybe it's true if you are just starting out with theory and that you try to combine the stuff that you play with the stuff that you know. But after a while, when, when you understand that language completely because let's face it music is a language in, in a sense i always com- uh, compare it to my students as as learning a new language you know as dutch people we are quite okay with english one of the reasons is that we have subtitles on television so we hear english all the time but then you have 
little kids, they just make English sounds. Then when they grow older, then they start to say stuff like, did you saw that? You know, which is incorrect. Then you start to learn the grammar theory and then you ne- really need to be conscious did you oh yeah did you see that oh yeah right that that's how it should be but once you you know practice and study that long enough then it's then it's a second nature it just comes you see out. That, then it comes out and that's also the way i see music theory and knowing your music theory that also gives you the ability to to deliberately leave music theory because with my own uh, music, uh, my own project for all we know, I really tend to come up with chord progressions that that aren't too predictable. So I really like to have a chord in there that makes the listener, hey, ooh, what happened there? Uh, that's what I really like. But in order for me to come up with those things, I really need to let go of music theory because otherwise I'm constantly playing the stuff that is supposed to be there again, quotes. Yeah. That's been my problem with music theory and when you first learn it, actually, is the fact that people use it as a way to define what they're doing when theory's there to explain what they're doing so that someone else can repeat it. And when you first learn it, you're never really taught the sound of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, say you're playing in Dorian and that sounds completely different than something like Aeolian or Lydian. And you're shown the shape, position one of this scale or mode but then you don't really know what it sounds like because you're just playing a bunch of notes in a row. You don't really explore with the chordal opportunities. Yeah. They're there, unlike something like a piano where, where, where you know, as an instrument, it makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> you know? true. And that's something that, that people should be aware of, that music came first and then there was music theory explaining why all that music sounded so great. It wasn't the other way yep. around that Pythagoras, you know, in the old Greece saw a music theory book lying on some rock and then thought, hey, let's, <laughs> let's create some music with that. <laughs> and also, do you not think that anything that you listen to when you like something, when you've got the knowledge of music theory, you kind of add it into your vocabulary like grammar? Yeah. Like, you know, like let's take Maiden, you know, the six, seven, one progression that they love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's kind of what I find theory useful for. It's just that, oh, if I do that, then I can get into that ballpark. Yep. And I need to stress that, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not a great musician if you don't know any music theory. That's also a misconception that some people have because you can create extremely great music without knowing anything. That's fine. That's perfectly fine as well. I think that the misconception about theory ruining your ability to make music comes from from people starting to learn it, but not taking it far enough. So there's this uh, thing, I think it's called four stages of learning, where it's like stage one is like unconscious, Mm. not knowing. Like you don't know that you don't know something. Then conscious, not knowing, you know, you're aware that you don't know something. Then conscious knowing where you're working on something and you're kind of learning it. So you're consciously thinking about it all the time. And then there's subconscious knowledge where it's, muscle memory at that point. Yeah, you just know exactly. it. And so until I think, I feel like with theory, until you get it to level four, that's when it might actually interfere. Like if it's at level three where it's conscious, that's where it could actually interfere because you'll be thinking about it while trying to write. But if you work yeah. at it enough to really, really know it to where it's just muscle memory or in, in your ear, 
then you don't have to think about it. Yeah, it's like English, you know, like that, that example that I just saw. It's impossible to have a conversation with someone if you constantly have to think, did you see that? Oh, yeah, did you see that? You know, you can't have a conversation yep. with that. You need to have that, yeah, like you said, in your muscle memory. Those four stages, it's muscle off, isn't it? I don't know. That's why I didn't want to say the wrong thing. So tell us about your book. Yeah, I don't know if I should call it a book, but it uh, I had to translate it from Dutch to English because since this year, Metal Factory is open for international students, which might be interesting for people. First, it was just for Dutch students, but uh, now it's international. So I had to translate everything into English, which took a long time. Yeah, and then I was told, hey man, why don't you spend some time learning Adobe InDesign? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm not that busy anyway. So now I made it into a nice little layout and I'm uh, I, I'm not completely sure what I'm going to do with it yet, but I might, I don't know, start a Patreon or do something with it, offer it online as well, since it's in English now. So it's more easier available for, uh, for people. I don't know yet. In design, I spent a lot of years on that program. Oh yeah? I used to be a graphic designer. So brochures ah, and stuff. It's actually pretty good. Okay. Yeah. It's a good program, but it brings back horrible memories of work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. What's the approach in it that's different than what you'd say is the standard approach? I make use of a lot of examples from heavy metal music. So if I talk about quarter note triplets, I uh, I have this uh, example of uh, Race Against the Machine, you know, go, 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 that song. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, if I, yeah, speaking about degrees, that's six, seven, uh, six, seven, one uh, chord progression mm-hmm. of Iron Maiden. You know, I have some Iron Maiden tunes written out or, um, because that's the problem usually with music theory is that it's so abstract. If you don't have a link to the actual music, what you're talking about. And that's when you start again with the music came first and the music theory is there to explain it. And I think that that is important. Do you think part of the reason why metal, we might look at theory a little bit differently is because none of us really sight read like classical musicians? Mm, Could be. Yeah, I think classical musicians just kind of hear it a little bit easier than say we would. You know what though? My dad who's, you know, got perfect pitch and all that shit, sight reads like a motherfucker, he actually doesn't know theory very well, Ah. surprisingly enough. And actually, a lot of classical musicians that I know uh, who are great musicians, like professional classical musicians, they don't know theory the way that guitar players do. They're not all up on like a super complex stuff. They know, they tend to know very basics or like the basic stuff that they had to get through in school, but they don't tend to go as deep into it as you would think from what I've noticed. So I'm not sure I agree that it's the link with sight reading because really uh, in orchestral music, if you can sight read and hear well and reproduce the pieces. That's the job requirement. So theory is kind of like extra if you want to, if you want to write something because they're not improvising, right? Mm, true. There's no improvisation. They're generally not composing anything. They're literally just playing things that are already written. So what's the use of really going too far with it? Unless they're writing their own stuff and trying to create a certain situation. Which is a minority. True as well. Yeah. In that in that community, it's a total minority. So from what I've seen. 
Yeah, it could be. I remember back in my conservatory days, I was studying jazz. That was my major, but all the classical majors, they could play the jig, the Bach jig, you know, those really complex things mm-hmm. uh, really well. But they didn't know how to play one, four, five chord progression nope. in D. They had no idea. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's really, really interesting. So the way that you're saying that music's a language, that, that's almost like two different languages, hmm. I think. The the classical approach and then the jazz approach, thinking of chords like that. I mean, one, four, five is not anything crazy. They just don't think like that. Oh. I mean, of course, the theory instructors do, but your average classical musician who's very, very good at playing some complex piece typically isn't thinking about it the way that a, a jazz player is or a really good metal player. Yeah, that's true. But it's because it's a different different skill set involved. And especially with jazz, the improvisation is such a fundamental part of everything that you have to be able to think on your feet. So theory makes a huge difference, I think. I agree. I'm trying to Think about how it would help a classical musician to really understand theory. Well, I just remember when I was in school, I had to write an entire essay about Bach and why he ends most of his symphonies on 2C51. <laughs> and why? I, well, I thought it was because he enjoyed it. That was my philosophy on the matter and still is. I bet you that's correct. Yeah, it's just a perfect cadence with an inverted second, isn't it? <laughs> So do you believe the theory that there's more than one Bach? Have you heard that theory? I've heard that theory and I can't answer it, but you're probably right. There probably was. It was probably like how Hans Zimmer is now, you know, even though it's under Hans Zimmer. It's definitely it's got written. a team. It's got a team. Oh. Yeah. The multi-Bach theory is that it was his family, you know, that yeah. the, the, it was a family business. So there was Johann Sebastian and then there was Gene Siberia and the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's just because people think that it's just not possible for someone to have been that prolific. But then again, is it also possible to have that many prolific writers in one family? I don't know. That's the other argument, isn't it? I mean, there's talented families out there. Oh, yeah, there is. But that talented? Maybe. You ever met the Churcos? I only know of one. Oh, you only know of one? You don't know... Which Churko do you know of? The one you've had on. Kane. So you don't know about his dad, Kevin? No. Okay, so his dad, Kevin, is an even more successful producer. Came up under Mutt Lang. Has done an Aussie record, Disturbed, like, I think Megadeth. Like, I mean, his dad is fucking awesome. And Kane is awesome. But then there's also the brother. Uh, The dad's brother plays guitar for Shania Twain. and uh, Kane's sister runs the whole studio business. Um, and I think there's one more member of their family that's like hyper accomplished. So Interesting. It happens. Okay. Jackson family. I feel like yeah. I was born into there, the wrong family. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wish there were more John Browns running around? Yeah. Make some. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> knowing my luck, right, I get someone that is completely useless at music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Do you have kids? No. Good. I don't either. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't want them. We're like uh, helping the future of planet Earth. That's the way I see it. Exactly. Have you ever seen True Detective? No, I actually haven't. 
No, me neither. And I'm not going to watch it because I want to be as ignorant as you. Uh, so, no, that's <laughs> too bad. That's too bad because I think you would really like it. Yeah, but, I think uh, you'd there's really a lot like of... Attack the Block, mate. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So what are you working on now? You guys just wrapped up a single, right? Yeah, it's supposed to be out in uh, three weeks or something. I don't know. We're supposed to shoot a video in two weeks, if uh, you know, if, if, if we're allowed, if possible, exactly. And uh, you know, who mixed it? I have no idea. <laughs> Somebody good. <laughs> I have. Somebody. I don't know. I have no idea. For the rest, I'm working on. Yeah, I'm slowly starting to come up with some ideas for a third, for all we know, album, but very slowly. Because, you know, that doesn't pay my bills, so there's no rush. The only thing that is important that I'm completely satisfied with it. And I'm my own worst critic. I guess that goes for you as well. Yep. And I'm not that easily satisfied. So that's a very long, sometimes very frustrating process. But, ah, you know, that's, that's, that's life. Is all you're hoping to get out of it satisfaction when it comes to your own project? Yeah. You know, the very first album that I released in 2011, my primary goal was to have an album in my hands on my deathbed when I was 85. When I'm 85, I have one album in my hand that I created myself 100%. Not saying that I didn't work with other people and that they didn't have any input, but... Um, but it's yours. It's mine, exactly. You know, I'm super proud of the Within Temptation stuff, but that's not mine in, in that sense. I... You know, I contribute. You're part of a team with that. Yeah, exactly. And the secondary goal was that it would not cost me any money, you know, that I would recoup all my investments because I invested in it myself so that in the end it would only cost me calories and time. <laughs> and that uh, that worked. And, you know, I did a second one and now I'm thinking of doing a third one. And I still hope that when I'm 85 that I listen back to those albums that I'm, yeah, super happy and super proud and Hopefully that it didn't cost me any money. I don't need to make any money out of it because, you know, that's an illusion these days. But to have a good time, not so much creating the stuff, because like I said, I can get frustrated pretty easily. But, you know, having a good time when you finish a song and when you listen to it and you think, yeah, fuck, this is good. Yeah, I think this is good. I don't care what you think, but I think that this is good. And, you know, that, that to me, that's the most important thing. With this project. It's like when you sit down after you've cleaned your house. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You don't like the process mm. of doing it, but when you sit in that nice, clean environment, and you're like, yeah, that's what I wanted. Yeah, That's kind exactly. of the same feeling <laughs> of when you finish a song or an album. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. That's kind of yeah, what I, I want agree. as well. <laughs> it's just out of curiosity. Do you consider it a place to put ideas that, maybe wouldn't be appropriate for Within Temptation or does it not even cross into that territory? No, it doesn't even cross, no. Yeah, that's the impression I got. Yeah, you know, the first time when I started with that, that project, people were like, oh, and uh, is it a little bit like Within Temptation? And I was like, no, okay, this is the analogy that I always use. Let's say there's this chef. The chef works in this restaurant five days a week and he has to create a set of... 15 different dishes every night. Then in the weekend, he gets to make a nice meal for his wife and his friends. Is he going to make one of those 15 dishes or is he going to experiment? Is he going to try something new, which he might bring into 
the restaurant later, but that's not his main concern. He just wants to experiment and enjoy the fun of, of making a nice, tasteful dish. And when I use that, then people are like, oh yeah, of course it makes sense. Something completely else. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes perfect sense. It's, it's always interesting to me when someone has a main project or the, the project that is like their main job and then they have their solo stuff or their other project. And then it just sounds like another version of the main project. Uh, it's weird. <laughs> like it's just like, I don't, Bron, I don't think any of your music's weird by the way, but like, uh, so maybe you can tell me what's the purpose of why not just have that all be part of monuments with what I did for the solo stuff. Yeah. I always found that it was a bit inappropriate. Like, for example, the first record is covered in orchestral elements, which I just didn't think was going to work for Monument. So so you just have more in your soul, basically, that is kind of like in that direction, but just not exactly appropriate for Monuments. Yeah, and uh, I also have other things that I want to say. Do you know what I mean? There's certain things that I want to say that maybe it doesn't need someone else to scream over the top with their vocals if that makes sense. It might be mm -hmm. similar in terms of its musical direction, but that's not the point of what that was. It was the point just to get a different perspective and instrumentally as well. That's perceived differently then at that point, isn't it? Got but with your project, you don't want it to be similar at all. No, I want it completely to be something completely else. But still you, basically. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> no, I'm certain, <laughs> I'm certain, yeah. How do you define personal style, I guess, as it comes to a project like Within Temptation where you're working in a team? Like, do you even think about your personal style or does it kind of just go out the window? Yeah, I, to be really honest, my personal style only comes in during guitar solos. And then the rest is just 100% just serving the function of... Exactly. That's so awesome. Man, I really feel like so many bands would be better if everybody had such a productive attitude towards the songs they were playing. I feel like lots of times musicians are their own worst enemies because they misprioritize. They misprioritize. Like uh, they'll put certain types of short-term gratification ahead of the big picture. And in my opinion, the big picture is how good is the song? Because the song is what's, the song is the thing that'll matter 20 years from now, right? If it's good enough, like that's the thing that will make all the difference in the world. But uh, a lot of musicians are very focused on getting immediate credit and immediate attention for, you know, flashy things or getting their idea across the finish line because it's their idea or short-term gratification as opposed to playing the long game. I feel like playing the long game and having the right priorities would serve musicians very, very well. However, it's not really natural for the artistic temperament to think long-term necessarily because our artists are passionate by nature. So they think and they don't think necessarily long-term. So if, if you have the kind of brain that can do both, that's pretty cool. I agree. And uh, I'll send you an invoice for my analysis later. <laughs> <laughs> when you guys are writing, are there ever goals for the songs? Like, we want a song that's in this direction, or we haven't done anything like this for a while, or is it just 
you're creating songs and while you're working on that song, make it as good as it possibly can and it'll be what it'll be. Or like, is there any sort of preordained direction or something? Not anymore. We used to have that a little bit, 12 years ago or something, but since the last couple of records, not anymore. Maybe like, hey, we feel that this album needs a piano, a little piano ballad song. That could be, uh, that could be one of those things. But song-wise, no, not not necessarily. That's I also think that that's why most of our records sound so different. Oh, because you're letting them go wherever they will, and naturally, as people, yeah, you're gonna evolve. And I like that. I like that personally. And and you know that some people, yeah, some people don't. They want another whatever album that they like. I think that's so unfair to expect out of an artist. Yeah, I agree. First of all, a record is a moment in time. I know, John, you say that a lot, but a record, a song, it's a moment in time where the artist was at that place in their development then, historically. It's not like 10 years later, they're going to be in the exact same place where they were. So I think that those fans who say they want more of the same, they don't really know what they're asking for. They don't, I don't think they understand that that's not actually possible because the artist who made it is not there anymore. Yeah, exactly. And especially these days, you know, there's, it's not strange that there's four or five years in between two albums. Whereas back in the eighties, bands came out with a new record every year. So obviously it's logical that albums are sounding different because there's just longer in between them. For some bands, yeah, definitely. Yeah, some bands. Yeah, but I think that's actually a good point. I think that's why the bands that have similar sounding records versus the bands that don't is the the time difference between the records. Because I I don't know about you, Rude, but when I'm writing music, I tend to leave it a certain amount of time to get out of what I was in. Yeah. What do you mean? Like you like stop writing music for a while? and then come back to it. Yeah, because you get stuck in the not only the same shapes, but the same sounds. Same tendencies. Exactly. And when the spark, and I find that the spark hits on one, you know, it could be like a sequence of a couple of notes. But once the spark hits, usually a whole album comes out. And it's, you know, it's along the same vein, but it's different at the same time. But then I need to wait for that to happen again. Otherwise, it just sounds the same as what I'd just written, but you know, for the last album. Because it's part of like that series, almost. It, it's almost like your your writing is defined by that time period. You know, something would mm. have sparked you to write in that sort of way, where you think that what you're doing that sounds like this sounds good, and you almost need a different experience to change the almost the landscape, like, you know, when you move into a new apartment or something like that, and then you're inspired by four different walls, for example, like that, or maybe you've gone on a tour into a place you've never been before. And that's like a different experience. And you write something based off that. And obviously with COVID, I haven't seen (laughs) anything different in a while to change the experience. So that's what I mean, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I don't think a year is long enough to write anything different than what, I mean, by the time you've finished that record, it's time to go into the studio again, <laughs> you know, for a year gap versus a five-year gap. It gives you three years in the middle after you finish touring, doesn't it? There's a lot of time for development in three years. Or misdevelopment. Misdevelopment, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you 
don't create as good, you know? Do you feel like uh, there's a limit on, I don't mean like a permanent limit, but a limit on a creative time period? Like, uh, say, you know, you're making that record for that 2.5 year cycle or three year cycle. You're sitting down to write. Do you feel like there's a point where you've exhausted all the good ideas for that time period? If I would have to uh, apply to myself with my solo stuff, you know, it takes sometimes four or five years to come up with 10 or 12 songs. So I really need breaks in between to not, yeah, get in that same loop and to sit down with your guitar. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to, to write more on the keyboards these days because I'm not that, that you know, I suck as a piano player. So I tend to hit notes that that don't make sense, which is sometimes <laughs> very interesting, obviously. When I sit with my guitar in my lap, yeah, I actually, exactly like, like what John says, I tend to, 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 to play the same things all over again, the same kind of shapes, same kind of melodies, same kind of riffs. I find it very difficult to, to come up with riffs because I feel that everything has been done before. Uh, not when I listen to music, but when I try to come up with my own music. So I, I like to take breaks. But then again, you know, for all we know, that's just my side project. It doesn't pay the bills. No one is waiting for it. So I can take that all the time that I that I need. And I can imagine that for you, it's it's a little bit different with monuments, uh, John. That you that you tend to. I I don't know how often you want to record uh, release an album. We, uh, we just take as long as it takes. Ah, okay, cool. Even though we're supposed to, by our contract, have it in a certain time period, which is 18 months, which is, in my opinion, far too quickly. Yeah. I think that, you know, well, they've never asked for it, if that makes, <laughs> you know, I think they understand. I think it's just in there as a disclaimer at this point. But, you know, creativity, creativity happens when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. I know that there's the other side of the coin where, you know, you just get shit done. That's the other side of it as well. But I like to just have that interim in the middle so it doesn't sound exactly the same as what I did previously. And, you know, you're saying about playing a piano as well. Like I did that for Catsy, my first solo record. A lot of it was written on the piano and I can't play piano at all. But it made for some melodies that I wouldn't have thought of on the guitar. Yeah, exactly. That's what I like. Or play with with an arpeggiator in Logic or whatever, you know, all these weird, weird things. You know, you come up with, I, I bought the, the native instruments machine thing three years yeah. ago. You oh, know, it, yeah. it's so unintuitive for, or, no, not unintuitive. That's not the word that I'm looking for, but maybe it is intuitive. That's what I'm trying to say. You just press some things with a weird sound and something happens. And <laughs> yeah, exactly the, the things that you would never come up with when you play guitar, because you know that instrument and some of the things you play tend to be a little bit predictable. And uh, for me, at least. And also even just exploring with effects can sometimes help with that. You know, how mm. you play differently when there's delay on or Absolutely. something like that. Yeah. In a certain tempo. Yeah. I want to know your guys' thought on this. This is something that used to happen to me back uh, in my playing days. And I never figured out a solution. Like the solution would just present itself, but I could never figure out what it was that solved it. So, you know, when you pick up a guitar and you just 
see nothing. <laughs> like there's just like nothing to play. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like you want to yep. write something, but it's just nothing. It's like, I don't understand how anything can possibly happen right now or ever. It sounds like you were high. <laughs> no, no. It's just like you pick it up and it's just like, I'm just playing the same thing I played yesterday and the day before, like nothing new is happening. And then one day it's just like, boom, suddenly new things happen out of nowhere. Have you ever figured out a way to get over that feeling, like the, the nothing feeling? consciously or do you just put it down and come back another day like how do you deal with that back in the day i forced myself to come up with something but that that just ended with a, a day full of frustration yep <laughs> maybe it's the age but i've become wiser and if i feel that nothing comes out then fuck it i'm gonna do some netflixing or some gaming or walk somewhere outside and might come back or maybe just the next day and that's why i like playing the keyboard's more because, yeah, I'm not that great on it or that machine device, you know, you just press some things and stuff happens and sometimes it's cool and most of the times it's not, but at least it's something new again, something fresh. And isn't that the reason why you play in the Dead Cat tuning, John? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what you told me once. Well, basically, Akol used to play in the Akol Caney from Tesseract played in that tuning and I found it through him. But... I also found that getting creative in standard was really difficult because I'd learned theory the wrong way. So at that point... What do you mean? Like I was just playing what I'd been taught through theory was correct. So then when I tuned to Dadgad, none of the shapes worked anymore. Mm. And it uh. gave me an opportunity just to use my ear. Um, but I actually have three ways of getting out of what you're talking about here that I go for. Which are? Well, first one is to play through it. And... That comes down to a mindset thing, like Rude saying, you know, at the end of the day, it could be a lot of frustration. But then there's the, you know, obviously it's an if, but if you hadn't have done that the next day when you write something great, you might not have written that great thing if it wasn't for the perseverance of that entire day. <laughs> you know, there is that, a maybe, you know what I mean? So I, I tend to just play through it because I've definitely written amazing things by going through that horrible first couple of hours. Same here. But there's, I don't know, I, there's no like, there's no set pattern to when the light bulb comes on is what I'm saying. Like, yeah, you could sit there and play through it and maybe in a few hours you'll get a great idea or maybe not. Or maybe not. I guess you never, you never know anyways. No, but it's almost going down to what Mr. Mick Gordon said, isn't it? At that point. Yes. Professionals get it done. <laughs> yeah. However, mm. I agree with Rude though, that sometimes... Sometimes it is wiser to just not do anything. It is also that. But then at that point, that comes to my second one, which is the change in environment that I was speaking about earlier in the different four walls. So while you are watching Netflix or doing something that doesn't require the use of your hands, just have an unplugged instrument in your hands and unconsciously play it. Mm. And at that point, your fingers are moving in ways differently than your mind wants to, if that makes sense. So, you know, that works for me, not just with playing the change of environment. Like, for instance, even with something like podcasting, like, I don't know if you remember about two months ago. Yeah, you were in a hotel. I, was, I just went to a hotel. I went to a hotel mm. about a mile away because I was starting to go crazy. <laughs> Still are, mate. Been home since March. <laughs> like, I couldn't, I, I couldn't take it anymore going nuts. So I went to a hotel a mile away for like a week. I was cool to podcast again. 
That's fun. Wow. So we did some good episodes. So I feel like, yeah, like the mental refresh is huge for anything you're doing that requires any sort of creativity at all, whether it's just conversation or um, playing or whatever. Your brain gets tired of the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. So imagine that you, you know, a lot of people have their computer or their studio room that is set up in a certain way with the desk facing the same wall, with the same things on the wall, with the same ornaments all over the place. And the moment that you go to sit in that environment, you're mentally in that place where you're thinking, oh, I have to record some music or I have to write some music. Hmm. So, you know, watching Netflix in a different room, taking your guitar with you, it's already a different mindset. So yeah, exactly. Get a different environment. And the third one I would say is what you've done with keyboards, either playing a different instrument or getting a new piece of gear that maybe does something that isn't traditional to your usual sound. So imagine delay, tremolo, something like that, just to try something a little bit different. And that actually is why Catsy happened because obviously all the monument stuff was on seven and eight string guitars. And even though there are seven and eight string songs on that record, it's mostly centered around the six string. And what I noticed now that you are talking about Netflixing with a guitar is that I realized that now that I tend to come up with some cool stuff late at night when I'm watching Netflix, and especially when I don't have the pressure, when I don't give myself the pressure anymore to yep. to write. Because like you said, and it all connects, of course, if I come into the studio, I'm here to either compose or record or do whatever, but to be creative. And yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's a good point, I think. It's why um, I don't even go to my desk to record a song now unless I have three to five fragments, like little motifs, you know, like three or four note phrases that get stuck in my head, you know, maybe like imagine them being that, you know, chorus vocal melody or something that's like within a rhythm. That's when I will go to the desk then. And then I have four or five pieces that I can juggle between and play in different orders. And that's when the catalyst starts and it starts, it's almost like an explosion going off where each thing feeds itself. Cool. So you're talking about the pressure of having to be creative. Yeah. What about in your band? Like there's got to be some pressure due to the expectations, when you guys get together to write, how do you block that shit out so that it doesn't get in the way? Well, first of all, we, we never get together to write. Okay. We hardly see each other when we're not on That's tour. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> like a true pro band. Yeah, exactly. It's been months. Well, of course, now we have that COVID going on, but uh, no, I don't know how they deal with the, with the pressure. And I didn't sign the record deal, so I couldn't care less. <laughs> Fair enough. So you just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Makes sense. I feel like that most people I've talked to who are in high pressure situations just deal with it by not thinking about it. Because if you don't think about it, how much pressure is it really? Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It, is it even ignorance or is it just making the decision to not let it bother you. Kind of a mixture of both. Doesn't have to bother you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I I can be pretty candid, right? I can be <laughs> honest here on this on this I, I am dealing I with hope. some with some issues lately since two years or three years that that even and I'm talking T V shows, you know, radio shows or really huge gigs, even the simplest parts that I tend to mess up because when I start to think of 
Oh shit! This is for TV, national TV, because some if if there's a TV thing, then it's usually me and and Sharon, the singer, and we play uh, our songs acoustically, and it's not rocket science, but it's you know it's 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 acoustic, you know it's pretty it's naked. naked, yeah, it's yeah. super naked. And I remember two years ago or something, we did this uh, TV show in Belgium, 1.5 million viewers live on TV. For U.S. standards, that not, that's maybe not that much, but it's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people, and it was a strumming thing, so that's not that difficult either. I mean, in the sense of you know uh, fine motorics or little delicate picking parts. And I remember that 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 we were being invited to to our little stage, and the lights went out in the studio, the spots went on 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 us. And then all those cameras started to move like a bunch of sharks. <laughs> and then there was this lady with these headphones and this microphone counting down silently with her fingers from five till one and then pointing at me. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And, and my right hand started to shake. And in the end, and it sounded great. I looked it back on YouTube. No one noticed. But I was like, what the you hell? Noticed. I noticed. It didn't feel great. And I was thinking, I'm f back then, I'm 41 years old. I've been doing this for almost 20 years, and it seems that it's getting worse. And maybe that's the pressure that I put on myself, thinking like, hey, man, you know, you are supposed to be able to do this, and you are supposed to be this, this okay guitar player who is, you know, who is supposed to be able to play stuff like this, even under pressure. And maybe that's why... I start to overthink that kind of stuff and then, you know, shit happens in my right hand. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes complete sense. I think that I get the same thing when I've not been on stage for a while as well. And also smaller crowds versus bigger crowds. I get it. Big crowds, I don't get the anxiety, but with the smaller crowds, I do. And I think it's just the overthinking and the pressure, thinking that you're going to fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't think about it... It doesn't matter. You know, even even if there's only one hot chick in the first row, when you can focus <laughs> on that person, then it's all fine, you know. But when, once you start thinking, you know, and it's always that little voice in the head, oh, there are quite a lot of people watching now. What if I mess up? Yeah, and then boink, wrong chord, or I don't know what happens, but it sucks. But also the pers people in the audience probably didn't even hear it. No, probably not. Thing, like, yeah. Because normally, even though for us, it seems like such a big error, it probably mm. wasn't. That's mm. easy to say to someone else. It's not easy to understand that when it's you that's going through the anxiety. Oh, of course, it happens every single yeah. gig. But, you know, <laughs> and then at the end of the gig, I'm angry because I fucked up one tiniest little moment. But then you just have to sort of try and say to yourself that it didn't really matter, ultimately. So is that something that never used to happen? Uh, less, I feel, because maybe it also has something to do with, you know, back back in the days, I didn't have the feeling that I needed to prove myself. Maybe I have that feeling a little bit more now for some weird reason, because I don't need to prove myself to anyone, not to myself and not to anyone else. But yeah, like I said, it, it, it seems that it's getting worse. And at first I thought it was the drinking because now I'm being completely honest here. <laughs> Since COVID, I've been drinking a lot because I was bored. And then we got summer, no festivals, and we had great weather. And I didn't have anything to do. And what's better 
what's nicer than a nice beer on a hot summer afternoon <laughs> you know so i i was drinking quite a lot i can be completely honest so i thought ah might be the shakes from the drinking and then i quit drinking for uh, i've quit now for uh, two and a half months it's less but it's still there i, I think so I don't know what it is. It's all in between the ears, obviously, but uh, it's interesting. Do you think that there's like a greater, I don't know, like it seems to me like the longer a band is around, like the the more rare. A band's longevity is a rare thing, right? Hmm. I feel like the odds are always against a, a band surviving. So every single year that a band is successful and keeps on going, and even growing is that much more like unlikely and amazing of a thing. So I, I just wonder if like there's added pressure just cause it has been around for so long and there's a pressure to keep it going and keep it going and keep it going. And it's kind of like a statistically crazy thing to do. Like, I wonder if that's got anything to do with it too. Yeah. Sounds logical, but it's not, it's not something that, I am really concerned with, I, I know that Sharon, our singer, she's always so, you know, because normally during a tour, I'm, I'm, I'm not nervous or anything, but it's, it's more in my case, more for, you know, TV shows or, or small acoustic things. So for you, it's more like in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And individual. Yeah. When you're playing by yourself. I think that's completely oh, yes. normal, actually. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's one, you know, one song which has a, a clean picking intro. And I tend to mess it up every time. And it's so, and it's so simple. Man, who was just talking about this? We just had someone on the podcast who said the same thing. Really great guitar player. Like, who was it? Do you remember? He was saying that, that one of the hardest things he had to do was do a clean picking. Oh, it was Andy James. Was it Andy? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's pretty great, so... <laughs> Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, I think it was Andy. I think, yeah. Or Kiko. It was either Andy or oh, Kiko. Oh, it might have been Kiko. Actually, yeah, it was Kiko, wasn't oh. it? Yeah, Kiko said it from Megadeth, yeah. He's pretty great as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was somebody incredible who said it. Like, who said, it was one of those two who said that, yeah, that that's the part that stresses him out the most out of like, that he's got to do on stage. It's not, I think it was Kiko because I think, man, I'm probably making this up. Even though I was in the conversation, I think that we were talking about playing like Marty Friedman solos or something. And yeah, I think that the idea was that that's not nearly as hard as having to play a clean pick thing by yourself. Wow, that's interesting that he also... Because the moment that even one note on the bass enters, something, you know camouflaged but one note on the bass if that enters then i'm fine yeah then it's nothing nothing you know nothing or one ooh from the singer or whatever it's all fine but that's one moment and that's why it's a mind fuck you thinking oh all these people i am the only one that they're <laughs> hearing now what if i mess up you know yeah it's so weird it's so i weird. get it a bunch of times in our set too where it's just me playing a clean part it's horrendous <laughs> yeah, you can't hide behind the drummer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the vocalist is definitely a certain personality type because if you think about it, that's their voice. Yeah. If they're not on it for one day, they're gonna they get ridiculed on the internet. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Exactly. So, yeah, that used to happen to me too. If I had to play a clean part by myself, it makes me think that being a vocalist, really, what a crazy personality type you have to be to be okay with that. Or a stand-up comedian. Oh, that must be the hardest one, stand-up comedian. That one seems Imagine insane. if people didn't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, any good stand-up comedian has been through plenty of situations where nobody's laughing. Can you imagine that feeling? Ooh, I'm getting nervous <laughs> from just thinking about it. Right? It's a terrifying, it's a terrifying job to think about doing, which is interesting considering that all three of us have played big shows in bands and like no big deal with that. But like the thought of getting up and just making jokes, God, <laughs> <laughs> fuck that. It's absolutely terrifying, up. isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah, it's absolutely terrifying. The balls on those motherfuckers. Yeah. But some people like that level of stress too. You got to remember that. Some people are strange. Well, I'm sure that anybody who's a professional comedian is strange to begin with. But still, I just, I cannot put myself there. I can't imagine getting up on stage in front of a bunch of people trying to be funny. It's because you need to watch Attack the Block. <laughs> <laughs> so if I watch that, then I'll become a stand-up be comedian. Fine, mate. <laughs> Have you ever had any friends who have decided they wanted to become stand-up comedians? Kind of like friends that start bands or something that they decide they want to be a comedian? No. Brown didn't say anything, but he nodded. I did. There's one. Yeah. 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 So the singer on Flux Conduct, my solo record, Rennie, he recently did a stand-up show. It must have just been pre-COVID. I saw it. Yeah. Well, I saw that he did it oh, yeah, on you Instagram. Know I followed him. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Yeah. Yeah. He did a stand-up show. And the intro, I watched the intro and then I was like, I can't watch anymore. <laughs> it was too weird. No, no, no. He was great. Like he walked on stage and it was hilarious. But, you know, like I, I don't watch stand-up comedy that much anyway because it puts me in that situation, you know, of feeling uncomfortable. Oh, you, you take on their stress? Yes, completely. It stresses me out. Completely. Even though I am, I mean, Lee Evans, I loved. But they usually come across as very confident. They do. But you know, in their heart, it's... yeah doing that <laughs> especially for the first few minutes like like it is for any of us getting on stage right i always have that sort of beating heart moment before i run them well the good ones come off as confident but have you ever been to like a local comedy show oh there's, no yeah there's one here actually like the, the the local band version of comedy Woo! so uh my studio's in a complex and there's a venue here and they have a comedy night once a week <laughs> I might have to go and peek my head in one day. I <laughs> just want to hurt yourself. No, it might get rid of my anxiety <laughs> about being cause on stage. Yourself pain. <laughs> Some of them have got to be funny, surely. One thing that comedians do, like the the famous ones who do specials and stuff, is they'll do crowd work sessions where they'll. It's kind of an agreement that they're not going to be filmed. And the audience knows that they're doing crowd work at that point in time. So they're working on their set. So they have like half formed jokes and like jokes that aren't going to work. And it's kind of the stuff that they have to go through in order to get to the point where they have a full hour. Hmm. But uh, I went to one of those crowd work shows in LA once where like there were like three or four pretty famous comedians and then like three or four I hadn't heard of, but they were all doing their crowd work sets, even these super famous ones. And man, they were not that funny. 
it was really, really interesting seeing these super awesome comedians telling bad jokes, not getting laughs. Hmm. And, uh, but, but the thing is that that was part of the understanding with the crowd. So nobody cared. Like it was understood. They might tell some bad jokes. They're just working on their stuff. So it's kind of cool that in comedy, at least at pro levels, there's this built-in mechanism for where you can fuck up in front of people hmm. and it's okay. It's like understood. Because how else are they going to get good with with a full hour? So you can't really do that with a band. <laughs> that would be interesting. Had the vocalist tell a couple of bad jokes over the years though? Think about it. Like uh, I know that bands will do like warm-up shows on the way to a tour sometimes. Yeah one or two or something on the way. But like, really, a band just has to be ready to go. The end. You don't have, you don't have 30 shows to fuck up before, <laughs> before you get to do the good one. How much do you guys rehearse before a tour? Usually five days. We usually have like uh, two or three uh, rehearsals, rehearsal days, and then two or three production days. So with the full production and the, the whole pyro shit and the whole whatever, you know, with the crew and stuff, PA and sound and monitoring and everything. How long does it take you before you feel like you don't have to think about things and can just do it? Yeah, <laughs> that takes a couple of shows, I guess. I think we all can agree that that one show equals maybe five rehearsals. As in, you know, your mindset and, and also That's the calculation and also your, your, uh, muscle memory and stuff. And, and it's a whole completely different. If you get distracted by that one attractive lady in front row that you don't mess up your guitar parts, <laughs> uh, that kind of stuff, that's all different. That, that stuff that you can't rehearse. That's actually very true. You also can't simulate adrenaline. No. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Adrenaline adrenaline knocks down your motor skills so somewhere between 25 to 50%. That's, oh, wow. So you just can't simulate it. So you can have the most realistic rehearsal, but you won't feel that adrenaline because it's not real. Like your body's smart. Like you just can't do that. So that's, that's why I think that like no amount of rehearsal can ever truly prepare you. Only thing that can actually prepare you is doing it for real because you have to learn how, you have to be able to do the things you need to do under the influence of adrenaline. And alcohol. And the only way to learn how to do that is to be under the influence of adrenaline. Yeah, True. and alcohol. True. So, yeah, and alcohol. The only so, thing is yeah. that I think that rehearsals can help you with your confidence. And that's a discussion that yeah, yeah, we've sometimes sure. had. And I think that if you know that you are well prepared, you aren't as nervous as, you know, getting on stage knowing that you have no idea what you're about to do and that doesn't <laughs> help with 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 your performance either. But I, I yeah, I... Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, well, I've seen it happen. No, I mean, <laughs> the actual nightmare I used to have all the time oh, in my really? touring days. Yeah, I had this reoccurring nightmare of uh, the situation was, say, it was somehow there was like a six-month break where I hadn't played guitar and then suddenly there was a tour, like a big tour, or something like direct support for Slayer or something. <laughs> yeah, so some tour where it's like, not only is it a big tour, but a very hostile environment. And 
hadn't played guitar in like six months. And then suddenly the first time playing is on stage uh, with no rehearsal. And this is like a reoccurring kind of nightmare. Wow. So stressful. Do you still have those? No. Mm. Good. We've definitely, you know, done a fly gig without rehearsal for three months. What, without having played guitar in like six months, period? About two, maybe. There's been times. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. (laughs) Horrible. Yeah, you're brave. Mm. (laughs) No alcohol. (laughs) Dude, you seriously got in on stage without having played at all? Like even picked up a guitar in two months? Yeah. Wow. Holy shit. You're a freak. How did it go? Horrible. Of course. Okay. Horrible. I mean, there's been a couple of other times where it was quite stressful. Like just, um, I filled in for Periphery in 2011. Hmm. And I only learned over half the set two days before we left for tour. And we ran through the set once as a rehearsal. Wow. So, I mean, periphery stuff is pretty intense. And that first show, I didn't even take my hair out of the bubble. Isn't that a situation that you were like, hey, man, but if I fuck up now, who, who can blame me? <laughs> and, mean, that, and that might might take the pressure off a little bit. What took the pressure off was seeing the venue, actually, which okay. was good. So it was okay. a terrible venue. Uh, I was going to ask, was it because it was really <laughs> shitty or really good? <laughs> well, it was in a it was in Houston actually, and it was a, a venue called the House of Creeps, and uh-huh. the floor it was a house. It was in a house. Oh, with um, two Mackie speakers. So I was like, ah. No one's going to hear me. Oh, so they won't hear you anyway, so you fuck up. Yeah. Yeah, and no one will even notice. Uh, but you're right, though. I bet you that even if you have a fucked up gig in that scenario, people are going to be understanding. Or they just won't hear it. Yeah. That's the other thing. Like, that's what I was saying. Like, the volume times the amount of alcohol that the crowd's had by the time you're on stage, probably haven't even heard you fuck up. <laughs> yeah, it's- Entirely likely. There's some math equation there. Yeah. Some universal constant of volume times alcohol plus something (laughs) times some pie. But then then again, I'm actually in the unlucky style of music where uh, people actually put on earplugs and listen. That's the other one. So it's also down to the demographic as well, isn't it? So whether people are listening to the music for enjoyment or if they're wondering what gauge of strings you're using. Do you, so within Temptation, do you guys get the dork audience at all, like monuments do? No. So you guys get like fans, like fans who just like the music and aren't sitting there judging your pick height. Or <laughs> yeah, pick up yeah. Height. no, that, that, that never awesome. happens. That never happens. That's, Has anyone yeah, ever cool. asked you about your guitars actually? Oh um, yeah, that, that does happen. Absolutely. But, uh, but rarely. <laughs> But they don't have like the Virgin Brigade in the front row. Oh my like, God. <laughs> you know. No, no. Well, crowd. no. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good place to end the podcast, man. I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And thank, thank you for your time because we've been talking for... What is it? Two and a half hours? Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you so much. And it's always great to talk to you, Root. We'll have to do it uh, again. Likewise, John. So government approved metal school. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, um, the Netherlands has always been kind of, well, progressive 
in their approach. I mean, just look at what they let people smoke every day. Yeah. I hope that that's not how they came to the decision of a government approved metal school. Cause, uh, <laughs> it kind of like, uh, takes away from how cool it is. If it's just some stoned ass idea, but, uh, <laughs> it's not something I ever really expected to hear. Ever. Nowhere in the world, right? Well, maybe Canada. Something you would expect in Canada, like in Montreal or something. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, they've got a pretty good metal scene too. But I think it's just the Netherlands in general. I mean, you, you've toured there, right? Yes. They support their venues. The venues are amongst the best I've ever played in Europe. And I think it's just that mindset that music for them is music and they're willing to support it. And yeah, they've got a high standard for the arts. Yeah. Overall, Europe in general does. But uh, some places just uh, really um, put their money where their mouth is, basically, when it comes to that. What's interesting about it, though, is lots of places that support the arts have limits on what they consider to be the arts. And yeah. metal doesn't often, uh, doesn't often pass the test. There's only a couple of countries in Europe that I can think where metal is truly accepted. Like obviously, Finland, Sweden, Norway... Denmark, a little bit less Denmark maybe, but then the Netherlands. You're doing it right, lads. You're doing it right. I will say though, overall, I feel like metal is not the outsider music it used to be when I was growing up. Like it's it's far more accepted overall. But still, I'm I'm not so sure that people consider it art uh, very much the w- in a way that would warrant real schools and real funding. So it's just surprising. It is surprising. But then at the same time, it's like one of the biggest bands out of Britain is Black Sabbath. Yes. I mean, some of the biggest bands in the world are metal bands and it's been that way for a long time. Like I remember in the 90s, it was this really, really big deal that Danzig played this show in Texas and outsold Whitney Houston, I believe, for most tickets sold at this venue. I remember hearing about this there's been a there's been like a lot of a lot of sales figures to come out about how metal bands crush bigger bands when it comes to merch they'll oftentimes crush bigger bands when it comes to concert tickets uh they never really crushed them on physical albums up until physical albums started to decline but uh sometimes they'll even crush them on streaming yeah i mean you don't really see metal bands with a billion streams or something like Bruno Mars, but uh, but still, uh, I think that metal in some ways is a lot bigger than people realize. And then also, I think that the amount of time that it's stuck around has got to work in its favor because now you have multiple generations of people who are into it. So you got grandparents, parents, and young people yeah. from same families. Or There's a lineage to it now, whereas maybe... At one point in time, it was just noise and new. <laughs> had it, had it proven itself. Do you reckon it's also got something to do with maybe the um, the types of jobs that people choose that like this particular style of music? I mean, you obviously get a lot of scientists and I guess creative people that really enjoy metal and the rock genres. But I can't imagine someone that wants to be a government official would be, you know, going to a metal show to go and break a leg. <laughs> Maybe there are metalheads uh, in in uh, buttoned up jobs like that, but I think that traditionally they would hide it. Yep. Whereas nowadays, 
the thing. Nowadays, I don't think they hide it as much. Like I believe like there's some mayor from New Mexico or Arizona who went to vote wearing a machine head shirt. And there's, there's a few metalhead politicians in the U.S. Uh, I think you see it more and more. Like people, people don't hide it the way that they used to. But I think also the fact that there's jobs like uh, jobs involving computers are much more common than they used to be because computers are much more common. There's many more metalheads in the regular workplace. Yeah. It seems like, uh, it seems like those types of jobs tend to appeal to people who like metal, at least progressive metal. Yeah, definitely. Was it uh, an outsider music when you were growing up? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I never actually really heard metal until I was in my teens. I heard, you know, stuff like Soundgarden on the on VH1 or MTV or whatever it was when I was a kid. And Green Day, Dookie as well. But when you went to school, was it like there were like two metalheads in the entire school and they were social outcasts? Yeah, maybe like 10 to 20. That already is a far cry from <laughs> how I grew up. Uh, the way I grew up is that there were between two and three in high schools. And I know I know it was the same in other high schools too because I had friends who went to other high schools. The only high schools I knew of who had multiple metalheads were the schools for the fucked up kids. <laughs> like the, the special schools for the kids with like behavioral issues, um, which probably why they were all my, were all my band members. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that, that's how I knew. But yeah, so they had a lot of metalheads, but regular schools didn't. They had like two or three and there were always the social outcasts, always. Yeah. So you're saying 20, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, that was not just in my year group though. And there was probably a little bit more than that, but over the course of like, you know, you're in a school with like three to five years of, yeah. So there was quite a Yeah, few- I mean two or three period in my entire school over the period of my entire high school career. But even so, when I was in school, I remember people that would listen to non-metal still like stuff like Papa Roach and Linkin Park because it was, you know, it sort of crossed over. And I think that that might have been where it changed potentially, where it started taking notice, maybe like late 90s, early 2000s. Thank you, Slipknot. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I think uh, actually uh, I have a theory that uh, Marilyn Manson changed society. Yeah. Yeah. Because if basically if you look at society pre-Marilyn Manson, tattoos, piercings, all kinds of shit that's normal now were considered completely taboo. <laughs> yeah. Like you didn't do that kind of stuff if you were a normal human. Then Marilyn Manson got big. became, And I think that people who were younger than the age of 35 or 30 don't understand how big he was. But this is like a major pop star, top 10 billboard, major, major cultural icon. It was satanic and fucked up. <laughs> and I do think that because that hit the mainstream, like the, the mass mainstream, it normalized some things that now nobody even thinks about. Everybody's got tattoos now. Everybody's got piercings. It's not weird to like heavier music. It's, it's a whole different world now. And I think that that's when it started was with Marilyn Manson becoming huge. I think so. I think you might have been right with that. Yeah. And then new metal, et cetera. Yeah. I think that's what it was, wasn't it? Let all the outcasts have a voice. 
So I would definitely say that I was an outcast for sure. How old were you? I mean, what years were you in high school? 2000 onwards. Oh, okay. So post Manson era. Yeah. So you were already in a better world. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. But I mean, I wasn't even introduced to like Nirvana until about that time. Obviously, I heard all this stuff as a kid and I know I liked it, but I didn't know what it was because it wasn't part of my upbringing. My parents didn't listen to it. So... Did they just not expose you to it or were you not allowed to listen to it? I just wasn't exposed to it. Obviously, it came on MTV. My mother hated that Soundgarden song. Black Hole Sun? Yeah, you know exactly which one I'm talking about, yeah. Um, but it wasn't because the song was bad. It's just the amount of times it got played on the on the, the radio stations she was listening to. So it was, that was always on. So I was always into that. I was always into, you know, Basket Case by Green Day. Um, but then I wasn't fully exposed to it till like four or five years after that. I mean, you can't blame her for getting sick of that song. Oh, no, I can't at all. I mean, she hated Brian Adams as well. You know what song I'm talking about, the Robin Hood song? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember how long that was on the charts for? Man, they used to overplay the shit out of those songs. Oh, they still do. Yeah, but I haven't <laughs> listened to the radio in a long, long time, so I'm not in touch with that anymore. People still listen to the radio? I mean, I listened to it the other day when I was in, uh, I had an MRI scan and I had to listen to Radio 1. And I think that might have been the worst part of the whole experience. <laughs> When's the last time before that that you listened to the radio? Um, when I accidentally flick the switch in my car. Okay. And then flick it straight back. And before that, probably years. Years, yeah. I mean, I remember you used to record stuff onto tape from the radio, you know, songs that you really wanted to listen to and you knew well, yeah. that you you only had to listen to the radio for like 30 minutes until it came on. <laughs> it's weird to me that radio stations even exist anymore. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But I mean, I guess that's what we're doing in a way, isn't it? With this podcast, it's a similar thing just to approach differently. Well, it's the evolution of it. Yeah. That's the reason that I'm surprised that radio stations still exist because things like podcasting and Spotify and YouTube exist. Uh, why would anybody choose to listen to the radio? They might just like the person that's doing the radio station. Maybe. it's, But it just seems like when you have the ability to choose what you want to listen to, why would you let somebody else choose for you? Some people still like to be surprised. But how can you be surprised when basically the radio is an endless loop of the same songs? It's just weird. So I don't think what people are into changes that much. I just think that the delivery mediums evolve. And this is an evolved format over radio. Uh, so that's why it just blows my mind when people still listen to the radio. Yeah. Okay. I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. It's not that people aren't into consuming audio. I think they are more than ever, actually. Maybe the, they are listening to radio stations, but maybe it's more the Spotify playlists. Yeah, that, that is what it is. So again, if you have that option, why would you listen to terrestrial radio? Yeah, makes sense. It's fucking garbage. <laughs> you know what doesn't suck? Government-funded metal schools. But unfortunately, not everybody has the option to do that. And uh, if they don't, we've got the solution at Riff Hard. Yeah. So at Riff Hard, we don't just focus on doing the scales and doing all that boring stuff that you might have spent the last 10 or so years trying to drill into your skull, but we focus on the main aspects of why you fall in love with music, and that is songwriting and being able to play those songs really well. I think also uh, the way your guitar sounds when you're playing it yep. and uh, 
how riffs feel when you're playing them makes a huge difference in how much you enjoy doing it and also how much other people enjoy listening to you do it, which at the end of the day, is kind of the most important thing. It is the most important thing. And I think it's a, a step that nearly every guitar player skips at the beginning of their journey. I know I did. I just went straight in. I did too. Shred and play all this dumbass, out of time, tapping, sweeping stuff. And ultimately, yeah, some guitar players might like that stuff. But if you want to become the most known guitar player or even just the best guitar player that you can be, then that isn't going to cut it. And you need to focus on the fundamentals, which is rhythm, songwriting, and those two things. All right. Well, riffhard.com. We'll talk to you next time, Brown. Yeah. See you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.